This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Isabella Deschamps, for this special episode. I am currently the president of PathSIG and a fourth-year medical student at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, Bradenton campus. And I recently matched in pathology at the University of Michigan, and I'll be starting in July. This special episode is a collaboration with the Pathology Student Interest Group, week three of our Path to Pathology series, focused on residency preparedness. We thought it would be fun to crowdsource some questions from the community about how to prepare for residency. Joining us today to share his perspective on our questions is Dr. Justin Kreuter. He did his anatomic and clinical pathology residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and then did his transfusion medicine fellowship at Mayo Clinic. After fellowship, he became an attending physician at Mayo Clinic and has mentored several residents and fellows over the past 10 years. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Corder. Hey, thanks so much for letting me be here with you. Yeah, thank you. We've done a lot of events for third and fourth year medical students. So I kind of wanted to do something um, for us since most of the PathSig board is actually incoming PGY1s. And then also, you know, just to actually do something for the residents for once instead of just them well, soon to be residents instead of just the med students. So thank you so much. And I hope this is useful for you all. I know as for as soon as I match, I was kind of like, well, first, you know, where am I going to live? Then onboarding. And then now, you know, how do I actually step into a pathology residency and what type of mindset should I have for certain questions? And so I hope that we can kind of answer some of your questions that you had today. And then if you have any other questions too, we'll have a uh, email that you can send questions to that we'll talk about at the end of this meeting. All right, so you want to dive into some questions? All right, I'm ready for you to fire away. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have, a, I have a really, I was just looking at this list beforehand and I was like, I don't know if we're going to make it through all these, but um, we'll try our best. So well, preface this, that this is, this is one person's perspective and opinion. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> I've been in the game a while and I do a lot with uh, medical education and I've mentored a lot of residents in the past and medical students and so, and fellows. And, and so uh, I feel like I can have something to share, but I am just one person. Yeah. All right. So um, you're not all knowing or anything, right? No. Yeah, no, I, I'm not om omniscient. I, I tell my colleagues that uh, quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first question on my mind and kind of what I've been really reflecting on a lot over fourth year is, so many of us are coming off a very relaxed uh, fourth year. And so how do you recommend we get back into the study flow for residency training? Talking about like the study flow, if you're talking about how to like prep up in the summer period, I think that you definitely need to keep enjoying that summer. I fully want to uh, give you license to kick back. I was just talking with Izzy in the beginning here about how uh, when I was in your shoes, I, I spent some time defretting a bass guitar. I also spent some time painting. Feel free to use this downtime for what it is as, as downtime, right? Just like an archer might you know, have tension on their bow to shoot, you also need to uh, relax that tension. Otherwise, your bow is going to go to hell because <laughs> it's going to get stretched out. So definitely you need to use these periods uh, for what it is. And so uh, what is important to you, if that's connecting with friends, families, significant others, uh, explore hobbies, uh, things like that, I definitely want to 
give you license for that. If I had my like, you know, prescription pad up here, I'd give you all like a little prescription for enjoying your, your pre-residency summer. I think that's really the important thing. In terms of like prep coming up, I guess the only one thing I would kind of say, and this is something that is not a huge to do, but I think that what is helpful is that your life is going to get more complicated uh, when you get into residency and it's just going to be getting progressively more complicated, right? And that's awesome. It kind of follows our growth about what we're able to handle. I mean, I remember being in my sub eye in medicine and like the senior on service was, was overseeing like 30 patients and I had like three and I'm like, how are you knowing all this stuff? Like, and I remember he just looked at me at the time was like, when you're in my shoes, you will know it too. And that's so true. Now that I am an attending in transfusion medicine and, and run this service, like that is hundred percent true. And so I guess the only thing I'd throw to put out your radar is I think it's really helpful to develop some system or process of keeping track of the to-dos uh, that you need to do, because I think that's something that I was naive about when I was in your shoes. <laughs> and that's been something that has been an important learning thing for me now being an attending physician. So I guess I make no money off this, but just a book to throw out there. Uh, there's a book called Getting Things Done. Let's see my notes by David Allen. I don't have it up to show you guys, but that is just a productivity system. And it's just a paperback book. I think I would, if you have no other kind of productivity system, I would say, hey, uh, that would be something that would be helpful to read and just develop a habit of doing that. And that's going to keep you in good stead for all the other things that we're probably going to uh, talk about in this conversation and, and really at the center of being successful in residency. Cool. Thank you. I guess uh, kind of following up on that question then. So I um, don't speak for everyone, but I'm definitely going to take the summer off. I've just been looking at Airbnbs actually um, a couple nights ago, but I wanted to ask, so when we do start residency and, you know, we're going to be working all day and then we have to obviously study some at night, how do you recommend that we ease ourselves back into that? ease yourself back in is an interesting thing but so here's my <laughs> second my second book recommendation and this one also is probably a good one to maybe just read in the summer to prep up it's called make it stick it's by uh, peter brown so it's make it stick the science of successful learning uh, that's another one that just blew my mind because there is a lot of poor study habits that i have that i'm sure all of us have and there is actually a literature about what is using your time valuably. And, and that, as you can imagine, is your life is going to be more complex by being efficient in your work and efficient in your studying. Uh, that's how you're going to have more time to enjoy life and maintain that kind of healthy balance and explore other things that you're interested in life. And so uh, make it stick, I guess, just to throw some shout outs for what are some strategies for learning, for kind of adult learning, which is an area of interest of mine is, is the, the big one that is very much backed up by literature is uh, like using flashcards to do retrieval practice, right? So I think there's also like online flashcard services. So using flashcards, so I think as I would be on rotation, 
I would go and make a habit of creating flashcards for what you learned that day. And I would judge my reading based on that. So doing flashcards, going back to those flashcards, so spaced repetition, and then uh, interleaving, so interlacing different topics. So you might do you know, surge path rotation, and then you'll do your autopsy rotation. As you start to build up these flashcards, I think, you know, shuffling up in the deck and going through those, those are the highest evidence base for how you're going to knock it out of the park with your learning. Okay, great. So I guess we can um, all re-upload our Anki decks and get started on those again. I don't know. If you did you ever hear of those, Dr. Croyder, Anki decks? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm hip. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how do you recommend finding a mentor in residency training and kind of, you know, how you're going to decide if it's a good fit and then what to do if potentially it's not a good fit and you need to find another mentor and also maybe, you know, without hurting anyone's feelings. So, yeah, yeah. I guess one thing to say is that in many cases, your residency may automatically like establish one for you uh, when you show up, or they might ask you, are you interested? And they might just generally assign somebody uh, to be your mentor. And that's great. That's to make sure like everybody has somebody to connect with. But I think it's important to um, also have your eyes open for who you are connecting with on the faculty. And I think that kind of that who you're connecting with is a really important one because what's really important in that mentor-mentee relationship is, you know, you got that psychological safety so that you can be honest and have these conversations. Uh, It's really important that you also have kind of similar expectations, right? That you guys are speaking uh, the same language in terms of uh, what you're expecting this relationship to be. Because sometimes, uh, you know, there's a mismatch. Uh, and, And so that goes into the last thing, which I think is really important, which is communication and just talking about that. And so something that we do here at at Mayo, which I think is really awesome. And to give a shout out to Carrie Bowler that helped set this up for our incoming residents, they're asked if they want to have a mentor and and so there there are faculty that have volunteered that kind of threw their name into the pot and said, I would love to be a mentor. And with doing that, they have a contract that we do. And so in other words, uh, you know, we, I fill out, you know, what am I expecting? They fill out, you know, what are they wanting from, from me? We both are seeing this and have a conversation about it. And then also it's a time limited thing. Uh, It's just meant to go for six months. Obviously we can, you know, renew the contract and continue it, but I think that's really healthy because your interests in pathology are going to evolve and who was probably a fantastic mentor your first year may not be kind of that right main mentor for you later on in your residency experience. And so kind of having these kind of time limited things kind of make it easy. Like there's kind of like a no harm, no foul. Like I I don't expect you to always be, you know, us to be going out to lunches and talking about stuff. There's just kind of this natural understanding that people can evolve and have different interests. So I think those are the the key things. I think something to, to highlight is that there is a disconnect 
you know, somebody who is a phenomenal pathologist may not be the best mentor. Maybe they are, and that's awesome, <laughs> but uh, maybe not. And so I just throw that out there because I think there's a natural, you know, attraction to work with some of these, you know, phenomenal people. It's very clear when you get into departments who are just amazing, dominant pathologist, but, you know, really uh, with a mentor, you're really looking for somebody who's going to be kind of nurturing your career, which is a different skill than being a boss behind the scope. Cool. Thank you. This will kind of change gears a little bit for my next questions, um, kind of going into more of what we're going to be expecting on different rotations in our residency. And obviously every program is unique and different, but just kind of general advice, I think, is what most people are looking for with. Um, so how would you maximize your time on AP rotations? And then how does this approach differ on going into CP rotations? Yeah, that's that's awesome question. So starting with the AP, so a, thir a third book, just to throw it out, this this is not an essential reading at all. This is just if you're if you're nerdy about developing expertise, there's a book by Anders Ericsson called Peak. And in there, there's this interesting concept. He, he's talking about concert musicians, like phenomenal musicians and how do they develop their expertise. And there's this concept of there, there is practice and there is performance. And it's important to appreciate that performance is not practice. Uh, what do I mean by this is the fact that kind of doing the show does not count for practice and getting better at your skill. And so why I kind of say this is not to be like cryptic, but to highlight that people are um, on anatomic pathology rotations, there's a lot of doing right? There's surgical grossing of specimens. There's a preview of your slides. There's frozen sections that are coming out. There's sign out. You might be taking a case to uh, some other colleagues for their opinions. Uh, there's a lot of performance that's in there. And I think what I'm highlighting is that residency is an apprenticeship. And so as your goal is to be uh, a phenomenal pathologist, I think that as your time is on anatomic pathology rotations, because there is so much doing on those rotations, I think that you can easily find yourself in a trap of the doing, oh, the, do? the performance. And so with the performance, you're going to fall into this habit and not be working on the skill. And so I think I want to really encourage everybody as you're on anatomic pathology rotations, yes, you're going to be doing all these things. Yes, there's kind of performance in that. You do have to cut in these specimens. You do need to preview, sign out. But I think as you go through that, you want to have times where you sort of hit pause and think to yourself, like, wait a minute, what, what do I need to learn with the specimen? Uh, what do I need to think about this? And, and that's a game that you can play with yourself that I think is really important to becoming a phenomenal pathologist rather than somebody that just spent time. And yeah, you grossed in a lot of specimens, you did a lot of cases, but if you were not kind of reflective about you know, my learning and working on that, you're really kind of missing a lot of, um, I guess, the, the, the marrow of the experience. I think then to contrast that with clinical pathology, 
I think that in clinical pathology, the doing the performance is a lot more nebulous as far as what that is. And I think that's why some people may think that myself on transfusion medicine, that I spend my days eating bonbons and stuff. <laughs> I, I, totally not true. <laughs> but what the doing is, is, a, is not as obvious as it is with like a surgical pathologist. And that's because the nature of what my doing looks different. It's not exactly me doing specific work today. It's the work that I did to set up the SOPs in the laboratory, uh, what's establishing the quality plan, doing vendor qualification. There's also elements of troubleshooting uh, test results that come out consulting on cases. Some of this will be apparent as the doing uh, to the resident, but there is a lot that happens uh, behind the scenes or doesn't happen on a per day basis that's very important to being a pathologist who is responsible for running a laboratory and, and running it well. And so for the CP rotations, it's the same advice is to, you know, there's going to be performance things that you're very explicitly told that you need to do and work on for that rotation. But you also need to think about your practice and how are you going to be better at it? How can you be performing at or better than your mentor on that rotation? And so what that means is you really have to, um, because it's not as apparent, what that doing is, I think you have to be a little bit more aggressive with talking with your uh, faculty on these rotations. You know, what are some challenging cases that have come up for you uh, recently? How do you bring up a new assay, right? And these are important things because I, I like to tell the story that when I got the job here in transfusion medicine at Mayo Clinic, which was really my dream job because Mayo lets me do all the education interests that I want to do. When I showed up for the interview, that's when I was told, oh, Justin, I'm so glad you applied for this job. It turns out this job also entails that you're going to be a general clinical pathologist for the federal prison system uh, reference laboratory. Uh, you know, so in other words, I'm going to be doing chemistry, I'm going to be doing micro as well as transfusion. In the interview, they told me that and said, how do you feel about that? And, you know, fortunately, you know, I had phenomenal training without skipping a beat, stuttering or pausing. I said, hey, no sweat. I got that. Same thing happened to one of our residents here. He's a dermatopathologist. His first dream job in dermatopathology, he was put in charge of all the transfusion services for the group. And they asked him in his interview, is he comfortable covering transfusion medicine? And of course, because we trained him here, he didn't stutter or skip a beat. He says, sure. That's and awesome. he's, he's doing great. And so it sounds like my dream job, derm path and transfusion medicine. That's great. <laughs> That's my kind of gestalt philosophical advice that I think will set you up for success and really kind of getting the most out of the experience. Thank you. How do you recommend getting involved in research and residency? And if you do find a project that you're interested in um, at the time, how do you basically approach that if they're not really doing a lot of research in that subject at the time and so on and so forth? I think approaching research and residency is 
it's something that I think most of us, uh, many will do because a lot of times when you're looking for fellowships, a lot of times fellowships will be interested in you having done research projects. It's also important to understand that I think research projects potentially can be one of the traps that residents can get kind of bogged down with projects and sort of, I think, start to fail expectations of faculty and also really run some of their work-life balance down. And I understand that I was in the same shoes where, you know, you're on a rotation and you're performing really well and somebody wants you to write something up. <laughs> it's really tempting to you know, yes, absolutely, and, and kind of take everything on. And I guess, you know, one thing is I think your first six months of, of residency, the first part of residency that first year, I think, you know, you're getting your sea legs for how does this work? Because residency is very different than medical school. I mean, now going forward, uh, you know, very explicitly, you are learning skills that you are going to be using for your professional life and your patient's outcomes are going to depend on your knowledge, skills, and behaviors. And so uh, you're really starting to cultivate that now. So I think focus on, on getting your sea legs first. I think then as you go and get projects, I think you'll probably get things asked, offered to you. And when that happens, I think my advice to you is always just take a day to think about it. Never answer in the immediate moment, because I think that's where we can get really bogged down. I think taking a night gives you time to maybe even, you know, reach out to your mentor and say, hey, you know, somebody offered me this project. Is this the right move for me? Or is this going to have a significant, you know, opportunity cost? And I'm not going to have that bandwidth for that other project that I really want to do, right? And so I think that time of, you know, hey, let me, give me a little bit of time to, give me a day to think about this. I think everybody respects that, right? I mean, it really shows that you're a thoughtful person, you're a professional. It's not somebody says jump and you say how high. So I think that's a, a good way to navigate it. On the flip side, let's say if you're like, hey, you know, nobody's offering me, but I want to reach out and actively find research. I think that's where you're kind of going to your mentor that you're identifying and reaching out to that person saying, hey, you know, I'm interested in getting research. And that's really helpful because they can connect you with people, right? They kind of generally have a good assessment or maybe they don't, but they can start getting you more into that area. So for example, I might be mentoring a resident in their first year that, you know, I'm a certified AP and CP, but I practice CP transfusion medicine. But if they're interested in doing, um, you know, cardiac fellowship, I'm not really going to be <laughs> the most savvy for how to prep them up. But, you know, I've got uh, colleagues, I'm really good friends with the cardiothoracic pathologists here, and like I can reach out to them and start kind of making introductions so that they can help my mentee find who's active, who's doing interesting things. And I think kind of approach from that way, that's the way to make sure you're getting involved with a project that's going to uh, go somewhere and, and do something. Rather than I think if you just kind of pin somebody down directly, uh, they may be in a particular phase where they don't have anything uh, right off the bat, but they may like you and feel compelled to offer you something, but that may not be the best something 
for you to invest your time in. So I think working it through mentors is the way to go. Okay. And I have a follow-up question for you um, on that. So I know you said that in the beginning of residency, we're kind of getting our sea legs and everything. I have heard that we probably shouldn't really get in too into research until we've taken step three or level three. And I kind of wanted to know what your opinion on that is. I don't know if that impacts. I think the two in my mind are unrelated. I think mm -hmm. there are others that might have an opinion that sort of links those two. And just, I think where that's coming from is the mentality of as a pathology trainee, you know, as you just get more and more out of medical school, I think there's a concern that that clinical medicine gets further and further away. And sort of, I think that that helps us, us being pathology residents sort of, okay, let me swallow the pill. Let me sign up and take care of step three, pass it and move forward with my life. Rather than I think where people get into challenging times is if they wait until their fourth year of residency. That's why I think a lot of residencies are encouraging people to uh, take it earlier in their rotations. But I don't think there's necessarily a, a, a true relationship, but there it is true. I think take care of step three early and move on in your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to taking care of it early and I'm going to take step three and level three. So it's going to be a grueling experience. I can't wait till that's over. For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. Yes, I wanted to ask you, when we are starting to study for step three and level three, how do you um, mentor your residents on, you know, balancing step three studying with pathology studying and then also working? That is something that's not new. And I think that all residency programs kind of have their way and their advice and that pathway. And so I think get into your respective residencies, ask them what's the recommended way. And I think just like in clinical medicine, I always want to just follow the normal algorithm, not be a special case. I think go to your place, figure out how do they do it? How do they set it up? Because all places are going to want you to be successful. All places are going to want this to you to take care of this and get it kind of off of your mind so you can focus on other things. Cool. So what is the role of having research and having research experiences, whether that be posters, conferences, publications, and then applying to fellowships? I guess it kind of probably potentially varies depending on what fellowship you're applying to, but kind of like a general aspect of some of the more competitive ones compared to the ones that aren't as competitive. What I think worth emphasizing or important to emphasize here is the idea that you can shift your interests. So I mean, Izzy, you said, you, you know, you're thinking derm path is your way. And so I imagine, you know, that being a competitive area, you might be kind of getting right in and you, you're probably going to be like, and six months. Okay. <laughs> what's my research let's go and then let's say you come and do a transfusion medicine rotation you're just like oh these transfusion medicine folks they're just the best and, and they're better than that derm path uh, we're going to come over that side or vice versa I, i'm just playing and having fun here but what i want to say is 
don't not pursue something just because your research is in a different area, right? Because I think that for most of us at the level that we're performing, these are all transferable skills. And I think that research, scientific thinking, participating in the design, the data collection, the data analysis, scientific writing, these are all skills that are that are general. Just, you know, even if you did it in another area, the cake and the icing is it's all consistent in the area and a great story. Cause obviously then fellowship directors are going to be all excited to kind of you know, hear about your research and things, right? But I think that what you can still highlight, like let's say you did transfusion medicine research, but then you want to do derm path. I think I would just change what that story is. And you're talking more about what was the scientific thought you put into the transfusion research that you did, you know, highlighting maybe some of your knowledge about what, what is some derm path research that you're interested in. Right. So you can talk about that. But I think that what fellowship directors really looking at is, do you have these foundational basics? Right. Because there are a lot of people that don't. Writing is a challenging thing for most of us to do. Some people really struggle with data analysis. Also, a lot of these different study designs can be particularly challenging. And so what you're doing in your residency by doing these these research projects is you're really developing your toolbox and that's what you're going to be using and using for that next step as a fellowship for a fellowship spot let's see thank you very much that definitely answers a lot of my questions with research and i feel like that was kind of what i experienced with the residency interview circuit as well because most of my research was in ultrasound and other random things and no one really cared what my research was in, more of like how the research projects like shaped my experiences in, in med school and like what I learned. So that's kind of good that that's kind of just transfers over. Kind of, we were kind of talking about fellowships. So this kind of good transition here. So if we're rent, entering residency with a strong idea of what we want to pursue a fellowship at, what advice would you offer to help secure this fellowship? And then also on the contrary, if you kind of the world is your oyster. You have no idea what you want to do. You want to do everything. How do you recommend that people kind of narrow down what they want to do? I think I start off and say both are normal, <laughs> as you might imagine. Starting off with the person that's laser beam focused, something that I really, I don't even know if I can, it's not possible to overstate this. Please don't think of residency as your like pass through. And I know that you're not going to consciously do this, but I think that we naturally kind of subconsciously do this, right? I mean, I remember in medical school, I, I started medical school and for the first three years of medical school, I was going to be an anesthesiologist. I think they're just kind of, there's these like preformed ideas in my mind, right? Like when I was on my OB rotation, I'm really like paying attention to how does OB anesthesia interacting with this, right? Like I like approached all that from this very specific vantage point rather than making myself the kind of strongest most well-rounded medical student that I could I was like you know okay if it's physiology or pharmacology like I'm your guy let's do this 
and you know, I probably, uh, you know, if, if this is uh, between only us and the audience here, and no, it's not, uh, you know, maybe the micro wasn't my initial focus, but like I told you, I, I ran a lab where I was responsible for micro. So I had to do a lot of catching up later in my life and staying on top of that kind of stuff and the new evolutions in the field. And so as you go to residency, if you're low, even when you're laser focused, go and embrace and engage with every single uh, rotation. Because like I said, you never know if you're going to be that person that's going to get offered your dream job and they're going to be like, yeah, we also want you to cover this, which is not necessarily your maybe subspecialty thing, right? You want to feel confident and you say, yeah, yeah, I'm the Swiss army knife. I can do it all engage every single rotation that way, right? Because that also is inviting for us as faculty. We really love working with those learners. You know, I think the most brilliant learner I've ever worked with was somebody who was beyond brilliant. And I tried my darndest to get to her to do transfusion medicine and she didn't. And like, lo and behold, I find out that she really actually quite very much didn't enjoy <laughs> the transfusion medicine work. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> but she, you know, she embraced the rotation. Still to this day, I think she gave the best continuing education I've ever seen in my life. It was honestly epic. And she is a general pathologist in a, in a private group. And she is amazing. That's um, awesome. And so, you know, even if you're hyper laser focused, I think, it really makes for the best experience because you're going to be the most prepared. This residency time is a special time in your life, right? This is where you're doing the skill acquisition. Like for me, with all my you know responsibilities <laughs> that I've got of stuff I need to take care of and do, and it's, it's a bigger challenge for me if I was to, wow, I, I wanna take on some new area of the lab that I haven't done training in or something. Like that's gonna be a bigger lift and may not be a possible lift. And so really use this time, engage with everything. The second thing for if you've got a laser focus is I think that that's where you definitely want to identify a mentor in that area. That's obvious, but that's something that you want to do. It doesn't have to be on day one, but right, that's something where you're going to want to uh, reach out to and start get to know the faculty. Also, you're going to want to know all the faculty in that area. So I think just kind of reaching out, you know, letting those people know that you're interested in, in that area and just start to kind of make the rounds and get FaceTime with these different people because then people learn to know who you are, even though you may not be on rotation. If they have interesting cases, they might ping you and say, oh, stop by. I got a really interesting case, which is just, you know, that's icing on the cake uh, for your training experiences. So I think that's that's the other thing. So flipping it around then to the person that comes in, that's just like, I've got no idea. And here I am residency. That's where I happen to be. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do in terms of path residency. And so for those of you that are kind of approaching it like that, I think that the same applies. I think certainly embracing every rotation. I think that something to highlight, though, is spend some thoughtful time, you know, in the evenings after these days on rotation and reflect a little bit on 
what do you think of this experience? Because the, the interesting thing is, uh, I mean, pathology is a, a wide <laughs> gambit with very different practices, the kinds of problems that we come up with. I mean, you guys picked obviously the best specialty in the world to do because we're just like having these awesome puzzles that come up in our lives that we go to solve. But depending on what area that you practice, the nature of the problem, you know, are very, very different. I mean, if you're a little bit of an adrenaline junkie like me, you know, if you like the emergency medicine world, the, uh, you know, the critical care world, I mean, yeah, transfusion medicine might be your jam. You know, you kind of realize in the evening, kind of after something like, hey, this is really resonating with me. I think for me, that was my journey of kind of sitting back and reflecting the evening because I loved all my rotations. Like I really love medical lung. I love surge path. I really enjoy medical autopsies. The only area that sort of I had a really hard time with, and I'm sorry, because I know some of you out there are really on it, is uh, forensics. So uh, legal autopsy stuff. That was the time where I mentally had the hardest time, honestly, where uh, shout out to my mentors that really helped me through some things. I mean, to see what one human will do to another human, honestly, I would need a fistful of Prozac every morning with my coffee. Uh, that was the one. Otherwise, I enjoyed all the rotations. But I think for me, when I was doing transfusion, at the end of the day, I was, I was coming home and feeling like, wow. I really enjoyed working with a team. I know that I helped these patients. I saw them. I got to interact with them. And I got to interact with them. And I'm turning this into an advertisement for transfusion medicine. I should stop. But um, <laughs> yeah, being mindful. And then I think also with your mentor, again, I think that's the big theme that we're talking about here is using your mentor to, as you're going through these feelings and things and experiences, sharing that with your mentor. And they can really help you kind of sort these things out, help you explore things in deeper ways that just at surface level, you're not thinking about, right? Because this is a whole new world. One thing just to riff on for a second, I, you know, we've been using the word mentor a lot so far. And I guess I just wanted to flush out the concepts of, and this is probably like hot in the business world, the idea that there's like, there's mentors and then there's coaches and, and, and there's like sponsors or something. Like, I mean, there's a couple different words out there. And what I think that means for us as pathologists is that when you're in pathology, there are a lot of allied health staff that work in the pathology department. They can serve as coaches for you. They can also serve as advocates for you. And I think that's really healthy and important to understand. A mentor is somebody who does your line of work. They can help you navigate, not step in the potholes, have the most success you possibly can. A coach doesn't necessarily have to be in your area of practice, but over the years at these academic medical centers, there's a lot of lab staff that have seen who's successful, they also know where the potholes are. They also know where the opportunities are, right? And so if we can talk and have these people want to help us, 
coach us for where and how we can be successful. I think that's really important. And then for them to be uh, sponsors or really advocating for us. Because if lab techs are saying, hey, we should call Izzy on this case, uh, you know, she'd be really interested in this. Quite honestly, one of my areas of interest is acquired coagulopathies and coagulation. I give all the credit to two people in my life that really helped me. One was a fantastic, brilliant hematologist that she took me under her wings and she was the one that taught me the dark arts of coagulation and the lead tech in coag where I did residency training. She was equally amazing and equally formative for me and my skills. And I had so much fun with her when we'd have some cases, I would, with my naive confidence, would kind of say what I thought something was going to be or something. She'd be like, no. We had a, a fun banter and she really helped me improve my education so much for having a sophisticated understanding. So I think it's healthy for us to understand there's mentors, there's coaches, there's people that can advocate. Everybody that works in the lab, they've been doing it for many years. They've seen residents come through. They understand how they can help residents be successful. And we need to realize that they can help us. Yeah, it takes a village, right? <laughs> so to make a resident and to run a lab. It still takes a village. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> okay. So I kind of wanted to ask you too about careers. I know we're kind of running out of time, but how do we navigate um, early on what career setting we want to practice in academic versus non-academic and academic versus private and private versus reference lab? Because depending on where we all do complete our training at, we're going to have varying levels of experience in each of those categories or maybe not at all. So I know for me personally, um, you know, I picture my career being academic in the beginning and then potentially going to private later on, depending on whatever I feel like, I guess, at the time. So I think that is kind of like a common theme of what people want to do. So how do you know that you want to go into private? Is there are there opportunities usually in residency where you can kind of see that or do you kind of just tour other labs or what do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. My experience has been here at Mayo, I think the stats are that about 50% of our graduates go into private practice and 50% go into subspecialized academic uh, Nice practice. even split, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, that's why I remember it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I only remember what I read the night before. So with that split, like you and I were talking in the very beginning before we started, that most residency programs are going to be at these subspecialized practices. And so the experience or exposure to a general pathology practice in many cases will come later. A lot of times, a lot of places will have it as elective uh, rotations. You know, I know where I trained at Dartmouth, we as a senior resident in our kind of late third year or fourth year, we would rotate at the VA where they had a general pathology practice. So uh, I thought that was really neat. You know, I'd be doing adequacies for fine needle aspirations, and then I would go deal with a transfusion reaction, and then I would go sit down and sign out some slides. So that was a fun variety. The issue is that I guess that really kind of comes in a lot later in the training experience, I think, for most places. And that, I don't think, is a big problem, but I think that it is healthy to start 
exploring those options earlier. And there are other ways that you can explore what's that life like? Is there a different way that I approach setting myself up for that life? I think that's where you can, in talking to your mentors, are there graduates of the program here that are in private practice? These days with Zoom and stuff, it's easy to do these email introductions and set up sort of meetings. And then that's the other sort of function of, I think, the conferences that you might get exposed to and go to in residency is that's another time where you can interact with physicians that are in private practice. Again, with this theme of people, graduates from your program, a lot of programs when they go to in a couple of the larger conferences out there might be like uh, USCAP or CAP. A lot of programs will do reunion, get together dinners at these things. And so people that are out in practice will come to those. And those are great time to meet and mingle with these folks and kind of ask some of those questions about what advice they have. Yeah. So you kind of brought up some, that kind of brings me into the next question. You brought up some of the organizations that we should be involved in and then conferences. I wanted to ask, so as PGY1s, what conferences do you recommend us attending? Are there some like really high yield ones where we can get a lot out of it or as residents? Yeah. Most programs, the way you get to these conferences is by presenting an abstract. So doing some research, which Mm -hmm. we said, you know, those first six months, you're really getting your sea legs. So I think for a lot of places that first year, you may not go to a conference that year, because I think a lot of them, in just terms of timing, it doesn't work so well. But, you know, as you go through that first year, you know, in the latter half, as you pick up a project, then you can work on something that will get submitted in the second year, where then you'll go and attend. And and I think that the general broad ones I think about for pathology, we mentioned uh, USCAP, I think about as really a academic surgical pathology conference. So unfortunately for me, that's where I think a lot of places people get together for those reunions. But as a transfusion medicine person, uh, we don't have transfusion at USCAP. So I never go to that meeting anymore, but that's hugely popular and important. So if you're wanting to go into a fellowship in one of the surgical pathology specialties, I think that's the place to be kind of front row center. I think uh, CAP is more of kind of a broad experience. There's anatomic and clinical pathology. And because of that, there's a lot more private practice uh, pathologists that attend that. Of course, academic as well. Usually they'll be attending because they may be involved in doing a lot of presentations, but a lot of private practice folks will attend at CAP. And I think it's the thing to think about for first year to kind of put on your radar because sometimes it takes time to do this, but are you interested in joining a committee with these organizations? A lot of places will have like junior members for committees. And in that first year, you know, that's where you can kind of talk to your mentor and you can kind of get plugged in if you want to make that kind of application. I was talking to one of our residents today where she put in an application in her first year. And then, you know, now in her second year, she's on one of these committees as a junior member. And that's another way that she is now for sure going to the conference. Also for sure, she's getting involved and getting that experience in kind of that medical leadership role that's out there, right? Which is uh, another way to kind of give back and participate in the community. 
Yeah, that and if as long as conferences are still in person, we'll see how things go. It's a great way to travel too. I I saw on the list that CAP and Use CAP are both in New Orleans this year, and so that's really exciting. But someone asked in the uh, chat, and I just want to ask because it's related to conferences. So Chant asked, any thoughts on ASCP? Sorry if that was already covered. Oh yeah, ASCP is another great one. Thanks. Thanks for calling that out. So ASCP is another one that many residents uh, can get involved in, also has a, a rich uh, committee structure. And so, I, yeah, those are the three to, to probably think about as kind of the, the core of pathology. So ASCP, American Society of Clinical Pathology, CAP, the College of American Pathologists, and then USCAP, the United States. College of American Pathologists, maybe. Bingo, yeah. <laughs> it's obvious that I don't go to that meeting anymore as a transfusion guy, but yes. And just to highlight, those are those kinds of differences, uh, where you go and which one. But I think all three give you great opportunities, great connections, great exposure. So we'll kind of wrap this up with one last question, um, just because I feel like we wouldn't be well balanced unless we, I also asked this question and that's, you know, how do you recommend maintaining work-life balance? I know we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but I guess kind of to specify the question a little bit more. So I feel like inevitably we're all going to experience burnout at some point in residency. I think that's just kind of the name of the game. What are some ways you recommend like recognizing this burnout and then steps that you take and that you have recommended people take to kind of get back into your groove again? Great question. I think that the most important thing I think for us is to try to mitigate our risk as much as possible is to be very intentional about what projects we take on, right? To, I think another one that's really important for mitigating it is talking and talking often, talking early, right? That's where if we can let mentors know, hey, I'm starting to really kind of struggle here, uh, they can start to help connect you with what sorts of tools and resources, thoughts they have. How can you still get the work done, be successful in your residency, but get more uh, time? And then I think the other thing is to be thoughtful about what do you do with that downtime, right? Because I can spend my downtime doing things that are not fulfilling for me. And I think before I say anything more on that, I should say that, as you pointed out, Izzy, like we all have different things for what works for us, what we find restorative. So I'm kind of extroverted. So I mean, <laughs> going out to a social event can, can recharge me. Uh, my wife is introverted and it does exactly the opposite. So I think that it's really important to also be, you know, what are you using in your downtime that's going to recharge you? I do a lot of journaling and I, I think maybe some people are like, ah, journaling. Like you can think of it as capturing your learning uh, if you're in training, right? Uh, or for me, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. So it's a great way to kind of capture your learning. How are you feeling? Because sometimes we sort of, like you're saying, you lose track and all of a sudden you're just like, man, I'm, I'm toasted. I'm no good. That's not being the professional that we want to be. I mean, somebody is a professional because they can get up and play despite the circumstances, right? They're able to perform. 
And so what does that mean is maybe it's making sure we get enough rest, we're getting our downtime, we can do that performance. And I think that, like you're saying with this residency, this is this formative time where you are taking on this new, important professional identity. And how do I behave as a, as a professional here? How can I show up as a professional? This is how we do it, I think, is this kind of reflecting. I like to journal and write about how the day went or in the morning, you know, what am I going to be really like focus on today getting done? This is the way that I kind of catch myself when I'm starting to feel off. I've got several colleagues here that I talk to and kind of have as my informal mentors that help keep me balanced. And then in me personally, I like pin palling and painting and, and playing music, jamming with friends. So these are the things that restore me and, and kind of keep me good to where you know, I feel like I'm getting my creative outlets and I can show up and, and perform at a high level every day. And so I think if you're journaling, even if you have never done it, I think if you give it a shot, it's a way that you can kind of capture and realize because it makes it explicit, like how you're feeling. It pulls it out on the page and you look at it. Wow, I didn't know I felt that way. It can really kind of help you know, make sure that you know, you're realizing what do you find restorative? What do you find that's really kind of killing you out? And I think in this point where you're trying to figure out how can I show up as a professional, this is important things for you know, to know about yourself so that you can always show up at a high level and perform. Great, thank you. So we all need to um, figure out what our hobbies are before we start residency. And if you don't have any hobbies, get some. <laughs> and um, I stand corrected, by the way, with the uh, us cap, or is it us cap or is it use cap? How do people say it? I don't know. But it is um, United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology. So I was corrected in the chat. So I just wanted to clear that. So I'm sorry, Canada, we, we love you. We just forgot. <laughs> in rounding with Dr. Justin Kreuter today, thank you for taking the time to discuss our questions about preparing for a successful residency experience. To all our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to MC education at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. Again, that's MCL education at mayo.edu. If you have enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm-hmm.